you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 34 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Totten Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, as always, really good to see you. And last week, you will remember that we discussed a very important decision from the European Court of Justice in the area of data protection, no less. And we're joined by two colleagues, Barristers Mark Finan and Caroline McGrath, who brilliantly, brilliantly, really brilliantly explained the recent European Court's decision in UL versus Österreich Post. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Do I sound like good, a, a good, Germanophile? Good definitely, yeah. This decision will have mm. far-reaching consequences throughout the European Union. Isn't that it? I, I, I. <laughs> it certainly will. <laughs> it certainly well, will. Yeah. Okay, well, today we're going in a slightly different direction uh, and we're taking a trip back in time as we reflect on a case that became a cause celeb in Ireland in the 1980s. Eileen Flynn, an Irish and history teacher at the Holy Faith Convent in New Ross County, Wexford, was dismissed from her position because she was in a relationship with a married man and had given birth to a child. She had been asked to resign because of her unacceptable lifestyle. This is what yeah. the 1980s yeah. Ireland told us all about. Changes. It's unbelievable. She refused and was sacked. This led in turn to a series of court cases which polarised Ireland, an Ireland of a very different era, I suppose it has to be said. So to discuss this, we're delighted that we're being joined by Dr. Donald Coffey, a legal historian from Maynooth University. I remember this case, Mark, from the 1980s. I, I think the well, the issue of the ethos of schools is something that rears its head now and again. And yeah, that was a, it does an moment. ethos that is uh, was hard to imagine now. Okay, so really looking forward to going back to that one. But first, before we do all that, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified on the Decisis website. First today, Mark, we're going to start with your area of expertise, actually, expert evidence. This is a decision of Mr. Justice Humphreys in Leach and on board Panola. In this case, the parties to a judicial review had agreed that their respective expert witnesses could be or would be cross-examined. One party filed material ahead of time, so they were the good boys in the class, uh, but the other side didn't until the day in question. So the court had to decide whether there was egality des armes in this case, is that it? Yeah, so normally judicial reviews are heard on affidavit evidence, but in almost any case heard on affidavit, it's open to the parties to apply to cross-examine the deponent, who's the person who swears the affidavit. In this case, it was a, it's a, a judicial review concerning planning permission for a large residential development, and each side had their planning experts. And they had got an order from another High Court judge, Mr Justice David Holland. And the agreement was that both sides would put their put up their expert witnesses to be cross-examined. And a little bit like what they call concurrent evidence. Uh, the, the term they use is hot tubbing, where... where where two uh, two experts get sworn in. And hot they, tubbing. Hot wow. tubbing. If you haven't God, come across the, the that term. mind boggles. No, I, I have not. Right. No, okay, I have well, not. Well, you learn something new uh, every well, day, I, I, especially I, on this podcast, indeed. Mark. Yeah. So anyway, what happened was that Mr. Justice Holland had given leave to one side to file evidence that they wanted to put to the other side's expert, and they did that. And then on the day in question, the other side suddenly turned up with a lot of material and filed a new affidavit. And the application was made by the, the side that had just received this to say, well, you know, we're taken by surprise here. And Mr. Justice uh, Richard Humphreys said, no, the, 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 although there were times when you could put new material, the whole purpose of this order was that there would not be trial by ambush. And here there was new material put forward and they needed time to consider it. So they gave the adjournment. So name your selections before you go out on the pitch. Is that what he was saying? 
something along those lines. Okay, very good. Okay, next to a case dealing with an alleged breach of a prisoner's constitutional rights, this is one of the so-called slopping out cases. This is the case of McGee versus the governor of Port Leash Prison. Uh, it went as far as the Supreme Court and the prisoner in question had brought a case concerning the practice of slopping out, which is where there wasn't a toilet in the in the cell and etc. And then they had to slop out in the morning. And he claimed that this interfered with or it infringed his right to bodily integrity. There's a lot of cases yeah, I, in relation to I think to the this. issue in a lot of these cases was that basically there was a kind of a chamber pot in yes. the cell and very often they were sharing the cell to, with one or two other prisoners. So I mean, really not, not surprising to think people were bringing these cases. And but they were the, from a long time ago, Mark, weren't they? Well, this particular prisoner was in prison between 2000 and 2004, so certainly not sort of um, prehistory. But he didn't bring his case until 2014, so 10 years after he was no longer in prison, or certainly since he was no longer slopping out. And so the issue was whether this was an action founded on tort, because if it was, then the statute of limitations applied. And he tried to argue that because this was an infringement of a constitutional right, it was separate from an, an action in tort. And there was a very, very long discussion by Mr Justice O'Donnell, um, but ultimately he said that the nature of protecting personal rights was that they were torts and that the, the law of tort was to deal with civil wrongs. And so therefore, if you're the bringing statutes. a claim... Uh, arising from an infringement of constitutional rights, that is effectively a tort. So it has and to be so, brought in so within the relevant within time and this the one limitation period. Bars. Okay, yeah. very good. Okay, well, next to the old hairy chestnut of legal costs, Mark, I'd say a lot of our listeners will be perking up their ears as I speak. And this is a, a decision where the judge himself decided he was going to assess appropriate costs in, in, in the case. This is uh, the case with the rather interesting name of Looms versus Rippington. It's a court of appeal decision of Mr. Justice Senan Allen. In this case, the defendant had lost the case uh, following extensive litigation. The judge adjourned the question of costs, saying that he would decide whether to assess costs himself or send the matter to a costs adjudicator. On the adjourned date, he assessed the costs himself. So there's a lot of case law arising from this litigation. Um, it, I think, as far as I remember, this was originally a probate action brought by Ms. Rippington. Um, anyway, ultimately, she, she lost this particular part of the litigation. And as you said, the High Court judge said that he was going to adjourn it in order to, to decide how the issue of costs was going to be dealt with. On the adjourned date, he then proceeded to assess the costs himself, rather than to say, rather than to make the decision as to whether he was going to assess costs or send it for adjudication. So essentially, the complaint here was that he didn't say what he was going to do and then do it. He simply proceeded to assess costs. And what the Court of Appeal said was that, that having said that he was going to make that particular decision on the day, he shouldn't have immediately proceeded to assess costs. And furthermore, that this was complex litigation. It was one where it was appropriate for somebody with the appropriate expertise, a, a cost adjudicator, to make the determination. And it wasn't one that was really appropriate for a High Court judge. Okay, wow. Okay, and and Senan Allen is now a member of the Court of Appeal, though. Is, am I right in saying oh, that? But this was his decision on in the Court of Appeal arising from... from a decision of another High Court judge. Another High Court judge. Okay, yeah. sorry, I was slightly confused in relation to that. Okay, thank you for those, Mark. Really, really interesting. And we're back shortly with Dr. Donald Coffey from Maynooth University. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we're delighted to be joined in the studio today by Donald Coffey, who is an Assistant Professor of Law in Maynooth University. He's been there since 2020, but before that, uh, Donald, you were in the Max Planck Institute in Frankfurt. Can you tell our listeners what, what kind of work were you doing there? 
Uh, yeah, so there is a director there called Stefan Fogenar, and he has a department, one section of which is called Legal Transfer in the Common Law World. And I was working as a researcher there, basically looking at the transfer of constitutional ideas throughout British Empire in the early 20th century, which actually came from my PhD, which was about Irish constitutional history in the 1930s, which... Right kind of is intertwined with uh, British imperial history in a way that I hadn't really anticipated. So I kind of just found myself in sure. this through like a kind of an incremental process over a number of years. Yeah. So anyway, you're, you're, you're back in Ireland now mm. and you have a, an interest in legal history, which is why you're here today, because we decided uh, in light of certain cases concerning the ethos of schools and whether uh, religious um, opinions were being properly respected, to go back to one of the most controversial cases dealing with this sort of issue, which was the case of Eileen Flynn and sister Anna Marie, sorry, Mary Anna Power and the Sisters of the Holy Faith, which is a case from 1985, where famously a woman who was living, living with a man who was not her husband was dismissed from her employment as a teacher. So, um, Donald, you're obviously very familiar with this case. Could you, could you give our, our listeners a, a bit of background to the case? Yeah, um, so... The case uh, arose in relation to a teacher, as you say, in New Ross, uh, in Wicklow. And Wexford. The, uh, sorry, well, Wexford, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but the the background was that uh, I, I think in one of the stories, in one of the um, uh, fact matrices about it, it, it made the point that I think she came across one of his kids and basically brought her, brought her back to the pub to comfort her. I think she was upset or something like this, and then met the man who was to become the father of her children. Who, in fact, was a publican, I think. Was a publican, yeah. exactly, mm. yeah, yeah. And actually, one kind of strand in relation to it, uh, in relation to the response with it as well, was that he was, um, he was a member of Sinn Féin, mm. uh, which coloured, I think, some of the response to um, uh, what happened subsequently. Um, and she ended up in a relationship with him. Uh, the school got wind of it, and um, in the facts of the case, uh, if you look at the, the Irish reports, um, there's kind of a, um, a series of interviews that are held between the principal where they make clear that, you know, uh, this relationship is from the point of view of the school, uh, one that she shouldn't continue to pursue. And then at a certain point in time, they form the opinion that she's pregnant. And sorry, uh, just to, to go back, when you yeah. say that, that it, it was a relationship that she shouldn't pursue, this is specifically because it was a religious school, isn't that right? It, it, was, so it, it, it was the, the, yeah. the, the ethos of the school because was a Catholic was, one. Exactly, exactly. So it conflicted with the ethos of the school, particularly because um, she was she was uh, in a relationship with somebody who was married to somebody else, although that, that relationship itself had broken down, basically. Right. So uh, so it was against the, the, the Catholic ethos of the school, and she was basically instructed to, to break off the relationship. And then subsequently, they interviewed her and they, they basically asked her, was she pregnant? She denied it. And then in another interview, she, she, she admitted that she was pregnant and then said, I think she says um, uh, in the High Court judgment, uh, there's a record where uh, Mr. Justice uh, Coslow uh, says that she, she intended to go to either France or, or England to give birth to the child. And at that point in time, the school seems to have, have been on board. If I remember the facts correctly, the question of the termination of her employment doesn't arise right at that, at, at that point. It's subsequently after the child is born in, in June that the, basically the, the, the school makes clear that they intend to terminate the employment relationship. And they, they make an offer, I think, of three months pay. And they say, this is an ex gratia uh, payment, uh, take it and uh, please don't show up in September. And then she brings the case, uh, basically that... Um, uh, Can I just come in for yeah, a second, sure. Donal? My understanding was that there was a com complaints from two parents mm. of children who, who were in the school 
and they, you know, made complaints to the principal, and then the principal got involved, and there was a, a you know, she was she was she was confronted in relation to this and asked to resign, and she refused. And at that point, she was dismissed. Yeah, yeah. So w- one of the things that does come up in the judgment is, um, in the High Court, it is uh, not simply that it's the relationship between the, the principal and the teacher. It's also the relationship between the school and the parents of the children, which informs its ethos question, right? So it, 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 it does crop up uh, in the case itself. Um, and obviously, some, something was made of this um, uh, uh, in in the court case as well, because it crops up in, in, in the decision. We should put a date on this. This was 1982, a very different time in our dear nation's <laughs> history. But 1982, I think, just 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 to, just to put that context on it. Exactly. And uh, the case itself doesn't end up on uh, being decided until 85. So it kind of works its way through the court system. It's it's March, March 85 that the High Court decision is handed down. And actually, one of the things to note about it is that this is front page news. Okay, mm. the Evening Herald, the day that the decision is handed down, that is the front page of the Evening Herald. And it has a picture of uh, Eileen Flynn and uh, I think his name is Ricky Roach, uh, who's the father. Uh, and not only that, but there continues to be an interest in Eileen Flynn afterwards because it's actually front page news when she has a second child. It's in the Monster, Monster Express in June of 1985. So uh, even after the case is over, there seems to be an interest in her as a person as a result of the kind of the notoriety of the mm. case, you know. So and One of the things that's peculiar about it is that they, they seem to be more concerned about the fact that she's living with a married, in fact, I think a married and separated man married and separated. Um, than the fact that she was expecting a child. It's, it's the fact of the relationship rather than the pregnancy that really seems to have exercised the school. Although... The, the the way that it's presented, I think, in in a lot of the history books, is that it's the it's the being pregnant outside of wedlock is is if that's the main issue. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a hard one to to call from the uh, from the facts because I think it's certainly plausible that that is the the issue. Um, I think you could make a counter argument that really the kind of the ratcheting up of the uh, dispute occurs after the pregnancy. So you could you could make the other argument, but it's difficult to call basically on the facts. It, it certainly draws attention to the fact of yeah. the relationship, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the other thing about it is that the high court case is the one that we're probably familiar with from, from law school and from studying and stuff like that. In fact, it was probably more famous for the circuit court decision that comes right. beforehand. Because um, in that uh, in that case... Um, the late Mr. Justice Noel Ryan had this phrase that he used, which was like front page everywhere. Uh, and if you don't mind, I might just read no, no, out. Yeah, please mm-hmm. do. He said, uh, times are changing, we must change with them, but they have not changed that much in this or the adjoining jurisdiction with regard to some things. In other places, women are being condemned to death for this sort of offence. They are not Christians in the Far East. I do not agree with this, of course. And, that, and he said, the phrase was, that the papers picked up on, if I can recall, was that he felt that the nuns were too lenient with that. <laughs> this was the comment. <laughs> can yeah. you believe it? But he, 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 never, he never managed to get away from that because that actually featured in, in its entirety, that quotation featured in an obituary mm. after he died. That was, that was the thing that uh, yes. stayed with him, Haunted him. Yeah, yeah. for the rest of his mm-hmm. life, actually. Um, which just goes to say, it just goes to show you sometimes people can say things kind of intemperate things. I'm sure he believed it, but he probably if you'd given him a chance, mm-hmm. he would have... He, he would have um, uh, phrased it differently, but it was something he could never he could never really live down. You know, it, it followed him everywhere. So, I, I was uh, sorry, Mark. Just just, just another point <laughs> to make. I, I was a, in secondary school in the nineteen eighties, and I remember this case. I mean, this case was was on the news, and it was it was a huge case. And the trade unions got involved, and yeah. she was supported to a certain extent by by her union. 
which would be the ASTI, I presume, the Secondary Teachers Union, because she was an Irish and history secondary school teacher, wasn't that what she was? Right. I I think, uh, and I could be I could be wrong about this, but I don't think she was initially a union member. Okay. But the unions did get involved. For, yes. And, and there were definitely motions passed at various AGMs the following year in relation to this. So obviously, the nature of the case being brought against her could have implicated union members. So I, I think I'm correct in saying she wasn't a union member. She might have become one okay. during the dispute. But, but well, Ireland was obviously intensely conservative at that stage, mm. but there was still a huge, you know, contingent of people who were appalled by this, that this woman was being denied basic rights, was being forced out of out of her job for no reason whatsoever. And what I thought, another footnote, and I might be wrong in this, mm. but I remember hearing about there was an attempt to set up a fund to, to support her legally. And the Bank of Ireland in New Ross, or the Bank of Ireland, wouldn't facilitate the opening of an account in order to support that fund. Ah. Now, maybe I'm not, not right. There might be a listener out there who can come in and clarify that, but I'm, that's my understanding. I have a recollection of that, oh, okay. that, 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 that there was a difficulty. I mean, it was a different Ireland. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it's, you know, a very, very mm. different Ireland. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, 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 but, no. That's, but, that's fascinating, actually, that, that, that detail. I did actually see <laughs> that they were trying to raise funds for her at the time, but I hadn't come across the, this, this bank element of it. But that, that adds an even... Uh, even um, well, no doubt maybe another one. bank jumped into the breach, but I think it was the Bank of Ireland. But anyway. Anyway, so... The, the, the case reached Denouement, obviously, in the High Court, where the case was heard by Mr. Justice Declan Costello. And perhaps, perhaps you'd just like to outline how he approached the case. Yeah, I mean, the case itself um, uh, is relatively simple from the point of view of um, uh, the presentation. So the court just says, what's the test? The test isn't in relation to contract. The test is in all the circumstances where there's substantial grounds to justify dismissal. And he says, yes, uh, there were substantial grounds. What are they? Uh, the first element of it is that she was employed in a religious, in a religious school, not a lay school. And the second uh, element was that uh, it was a breach of the code of conduct. And uh, this had an effect, and I quote here, on the school and its pupils. Okay, yeah. So it's not confined to a straightforward employment relationship. Mm. It's also in relation to the community, as you pointed out uh, earlier. And that's basically what the case comes down to. But they did refer to the um, to a Canadian decision of the same year. And I think that, that must have been quite influential on Mr. Justice Costello. Exactly. So there's a Canadian case, uh, Caldwell, uh, which is, is handed down either that year or the previous year. And that was another case involving a Catholic school, uh, this time in British Columbia, and in that case, again, a similar factual matrix and uh, the Canadian courts upheld uh, the dismissal there. And now, this was a very similar case where a woman yeah. was in a relationship outside of wedlock and the, exactly. and the, the school had fired her. Yeah. And, and they said, yeah, religious ethos, therefore, you're entitled to fire her from her position. Exactly. And, and I, like one of the things that's interesting about it is that, of course, there's a very different uh, context, context in relation to a religious school in Canada. Yeah as opposed to religious education in Ireland, where the vast majority of schools are, in fact, at this point in time, uh, religious. So one of the things that there would have been in the Canadian context would have been the ability of the applicant in that case to pursue employment elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Whereas essentially, once you're, once you're out in the Irish context, that's it. I mean, as, in a regional as, town in Ireland, there are there are only Catholic yeah, schools, really. Exactly, or certainly were in those days. Yeah, and and I mean, we're all familiar with John McGahern and yes. Mm. So yeah, that's what I was thinking. The John yeah. McGahern case, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so where I, his union refused to support him, the yeah. INTO in that case said, "No, what are you doing? This is appalling. Carry <laughs> yeah, on." Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, so, taking up with a, with, a, with a divorced woman, absolutely. Yeah. It was outrageous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose actually the unions at least had changed yeah. in the interim, <laughs> slightly more progressive. <laughs> but, absolutely. Yeah. But what's interesting about that as well is that there is a 
subsequent case, much, much later, uh, a comparative case, which is in Belize in about 2005, Wade and Roach. And in that case, they do examine both the Canadian case and the Irish case. And in both cases, and it's a very similar situation there. I think it's a Jesuit school. And they say, okay, um, again, somebody carrying on a relationship out of wedlock. And they dismiss both cases. And the grounds that they dismiss it on is they say, well, you know, in Belize, it's different because we're not talking about private schools. We're talking about state schools. And the funding is provided by the taxpayer. And okay, the patron is the church. Nonetheless, uh, you are going to be protected uh, under the Constitution of Belize. Now, they don't order her reinstatement, but they give a large award of damages, basically, because that was an alternative remedy that had been uh, pleaded in the case. But what's interesting about that, of course, is that that was a line of argument that would have been available to the Irish courts. Yeah. And I think if they were to to deal with a case like that today, that would be the line that they would go down, I, I imagine. Donald, can I just ask you about the sure. role of um, Declan Costello, who's obviously a man who's revered within within the legal world in this jurisdiction, a former president of the High Court and as a politician, former Attorney General and as a, as a politician famously was associated with the Just Society in Fine Gael, mm. a very progressive man. And when you look at the decision in the High Court and you're kind of, you know, you scroll to the top and you see who was the judge that decided this, I have to say from a distance, I was surprised that it was him. It, it was, is it out of kilter with him, this decision? It was a very conservative decision and it was a decision that owed a lot to, I suppose, the Christian nature of the Constitution that seemed to be all over this case. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I don't have a, a settled opinion on his jurisprudence as a whole. Um, but one of the things I think we probably should bear in mind is that by and large, the judiciary at the time were would have been firmly in the Christian Democrat model, you know. And it's one of the things you notice in particular with, say, for example, Declan Walsh. When Declan Walsh goes to Europe, he finds himself out of kilter with... Brian Walsh. Oh, sorry, Brian Walsh, excuse me. Uh, Brian Walsh goes to Europe. He finds himself out of kilter with the other European judges. But he can't really understand it because he's firmly in the Christian Democrat tradition. He's kind of like, okay, but this is where we are. And he, from the point of view of the European jurisprudence, at least, he comes across as being a bit dated, you know? Um, and, and I think that's probably the case here as well. I mean, in a way, I suppose you could say Declan Costello was more liberal than the circuit court judge, you know. So, like comparatively speaking, he would have he would have said, "Well, no, like I, I certainly wouldn't agree with those kind of opinions." So that's the baseline against which you're you're, you're judging things. But the I, other thing about oh, sorry, I, I suppose it's also notable that he did deliver the High Court judgment in the X case, where he mm. was the the one who said that. Um, the girl couldn't travel outside the country. Yeah. And obviously that was overturned by the Supreme Court. So yeah. he obviously he's associated with a liberal view in many ways, but wasn't afraid to uphold um, what, what he saw to be the law on the conservative side in, in relation to both of those cases. Yeah, and I, I wonder as well if if the, the Just Society document is liberal within a conservative context. And maybe if we viewed it in the round, we would say probably is more conservative than we think of it because it's this great uh, movement. But... Like the, the 80s as well, one of the things I found so interesting about this, because this this case kind of falls in a period where I'm, I would have been too young to be politically aware, but it's not far enough in the in, in the past that I can you know read that many books about it. So it's, it's kind of in an interesting sweet spot in that sense. But one of the things that's interesting about it is that it occurs at a point where there's a potential for liberalization, yes. right? Because Gareth Fitzgerald is in power. And you have at, at, at around about the same time, it is the, let me just get the correct title of it, the Health Family Planning Amendment Act 1985, which is the one that allows sale of condoms without prescription. 
right? So there's this movement that is it's starting to take up a little bit of steam. And then, of course, the following year, there is the rejection of the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, which yes. was the divorce the divorce yeah. referendum. So, yes, so, so it took 10 years before, right. on, on, on a very marginal decision before that was reversed. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, the, the story, of course, about the, the passage of, of it in the end is that, you know, there was rain in Mayo. And if there hadn't been that rain, more people would have turned out and maybe made, it was such a thin knife edge. But, well, but, but one of the, the really interesting things about it is I've never that, heard that one before. That's a very <laughs> yeah, interesting yeah. one, yeah. Um, but the, the uh, no offence to Mayo people <laughs> to this, but what's interesting about it is it occurs at this point in time where Irish, like there is this conflict where Irish society can go one way or the other. And there, there are like movements towards liberalisation. There are also movements obviously going the opposite direction. And it kind of falls right in the middle of this culture war element yeah. Um, uh, that's happening there. So it's it's a particularly interesting one for like the different interest groups in society that are arrayed on both sides uh, of the issue in relation to it. You know? But um, while it's it's really interesting to have this philosophical discussion, which I, which I love. If we get back to the practicalities, I mean, Eileen Flynn lost her job. She didn't do anything wrong. She had a relationship and she got pregnant. She was an excellent teacher by all accounts. I mean, I think that's recorded in all in all of the decisions. So she loses her job. She goes to the Employment Appeals Tribunal. Mm you know, claiming unfair dismissal. She loses Mm -hmm. in the Employment Appeals Tribunal. Then she appeals that to the Circuit Court and our friend uh, makes the comments that he made and she loses there. And then she goes to the High Court and she loses there as well. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you are not entitled to work in an Irish school. I mean, whatever about the legal arguments and the ethos, I mean, it really is shocking, isn't it? Certainly from today's perspective, I mean, the idea that you would lose your job because of a relationship like that is is inconceivable. Mm. But I suppose the, the, I mean, there would have been an available case to bring to the Court of Human Rights, which obviously never took place in in relation to that case. But it's, um, but but, um, only a few years later, her situation would have been absolutely unthinkable. But let's and let's let's move move things on to the the present day. And we got talking, I suppose, in the wake of Enoch Burke, where kind of religious beliefs and education sort of emerged. That's a highly different scenario to obviously the one in Eileen Flynn. But the whole notion of religious beliefs in the context of education, Donald, what what is the current view? What is the constitutional position in relation to that? I suppose the position is that it's fine. You know, you can you can still have a religious ethos. Most schools, I, I, I haven't looked up the statistics on it, but I, I think most schools would have a religious ethos. There is There are limitations on what the majority faith can do. So up until, up until recently, I'm not entirely sure when, when the law changed in relation to this, but you used to be able to uh, discriminate in terms of admissions on the basis of... No longer. But no longer, yes. except if it's Church of Ireland or a minority faith, yes. right? you can still do it. So those kind of protections are, are kind of gradually uh, going away. But as long as it's a minority faith, you can still, there are still things you can do. But even without that, uh, if you if you have a child in a school, like if you look at the documents in relation to it, they normally refer to an ethos. Now, there are other uh, other models that are available now, there's the Educate Together model and there's also the Department of Education has a separate non-denominational model, the name of which I forget, but there, it, it's not Educate Together, it's a separate patronage board. And I mean, you may have come across the references to the um, school in Rohini who were trying to move to that Department of Education model recently and they were unsuccessful in, in getting the or the majority of the uh, parents in, the, in, in relation to school to, to agree to it. I suppose one of the big differences now, of course, is that back in the 1980s, there still would have been a lot of members of religious orders still on the teaching staff of schools. Very often the head, head, the, head the principal of the school would have been a member of a religious order. Mm. Whereas these days you tend to find that the 
staffed almost entirely lay and to the extent that there's religious involvement, it's on the board of management rather than the actual the, the, the staff of the school. So it must make it much harder to, to sort of enforce a, a religious ethos of, of the nature that, was try, that they were trying to enforce then. Yeah, I mean, when I think back to my own primary school, we did have uh, two nuns who were uh, mm. teachers in that school. And I think both have retired and wouldn't have been replaced by uh, nuns. So I think you're right. I, I mean, one of the things uh, you can do if you ever go to UCD and go to the philosophy department, just have a walk down and have a look at the um, pictures of the former heads. I mean, there's a certain point in time where they're all members of religious orders. Yeah. And that was one of the things that certainly they wanted to do in relation to the National University uh, was to make sure that, you know, you didn't have yeah. troublemakers, basically. Yeah. Just looking back at, at the Eileen Flynn case again, Donal, I mean, it is of its time, mm. you know, and it is in the context of, let's say, the litigation being pursued by David Norris at the same time, you know, and ultimately the option of going to Europe. How different? I, I was very interested in that comment you made about Brian Walsh going to Europe. You said he was out of sync. He was a Christian mm. Democrat, which is, you know, obviously traditionally a Fine Gael and probably a Fianna Fáil position. Are you saying they were so, socially democratic, the, the judges, the justices in Europe at the time? Was that why he was out of sync? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because the movement in relation to social mores in Europe had, had happened, let's say, the end of the 1960s. That's the, that's the big uh, thing that they refer to in Germany, at least, you know, the, the children of 68. By the time the 80s roll around, that whole position has shifted, essentially. So whereas obviously in Ireland, it, it doesn't really shift, I think, until the 90s. So it's about, a, about a, a decade after these kind of things. And even then, you know, it's, it's incremental, it's slow, it's slow uh, change, but it, it does start happening. But that, that I think, is the, there are, there are a couple of cases where he's in, where he's in dissent and he, he, kind of, he almost sounds plaintive in terms of like his, his frustration with like, how is it possible that the European uh, rights documents could lead to these results? I mean, we all, like, we all agreed to this thing, but he was harkening back to an older tradition. So Samuel Moyne in Yale has written about how the great human rights documents in the, the post-war period were heavily influenced by Christian democracy. So in a sense, he was correct, right? So that tradition yes. was there. And it just it, hadn't moved with the time. But it had, but it had but changed. the times right? hadn't come to Ireland, hadn't yeah. come to these shores <laughs> no. at that stage. Is that it? You know? yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think you're right as well I, to, point, um, to point out the, the human uh, cost that there is associated with this because, I mean, we, we can look at this from the point of view of constitutional principle. We can look at it from the point of view of employment law. Um, we can look at it as kind of a, a sociological thing, whatever. But you're right. At, at the end of the day, you have a person who loses their job, their livelihood in a status way that we... Status in society, status everything, society, yes. The whole thing. And I, I've got to imagine that there would have been some kind of uh, social uh, 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 opprobrium that would have uh, fallen down as well. You can imagine in a small, in a small uh, a town in... In, in Ireland at that point in time, people would have uh, commented about it and stuff like this. So it would have been difficult as well, not only for her, but probably for her children as well, yeah. I'd have to yeah. imagine. Okay, well, Donald, I have to say, I have really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank yeah. you for coming in and talking to about a fascinating case. And I think it's a fascinating piece of social history. That They say the past is a foreign country. <laughs> I think it really is. It very much is uh, when we look back on that. I mean, I always thought it was just, it was a very, very harsh Ireland that, that treated Eileen Flynn in that way. Mm. Um, we're a very different country now, thank God, uh, which is which is a good thing. Before we go, before we go, you have another job to do. Yeah, a legal book or a book. You, you're, you can you can go beyond the world of law if you want, or a movie that you can tell us about. So I I I, I was aware this question was going to come. So I have an answer. I'm not sure has it been given in the past because I haven't listened to the entire back catalog yet. I'm, I'm working my way through them. 
uh, which is The Castle. Has anyone mentioned that? It's no, no. Thomas Mann. That's the Australian film, isn't it? The Australian <laughs> film, <laughs> okay. The Castle. Well, I'll give you... You're far too highbrow. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I'll give you two. You can also have Kafka as The Castle, which is oh, very Kafka. good. Oh, Kafka. Sorry, Kafka. For, I beg your pardon. It's a very, good, it's very good legal reasoning there. Yeah, they, yeah. they get into an argument about the, what, what the meaning of a, a letter that's written is, uh, but which is particularly good. So, uh, like, read Kafka as well. But The Castle is fantastic. It's just a comedy movie. But it gave to us uh, this phrase people using constitutional law now where he says it's the vibe of the thing where he, he <laughs> he's asked for some some clause he says well you know what what ground are you relying on here he says oh yeah article 55 of the constitution they say something like oh you know the federal government shall have power to regulate the posts and telegraphs and he says no no it's the vibe of the thing and that's 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 the the, the phrase people go to when you don't have a leg to stand yeah, on it's yeah. the vibe of the thing Fair enough. <laughs> right well donald thank you very much for joining us thank and you. discussing eileen flynn i should probably mention of course that the eileen flynn case uh formed the basis of Column to Bean's second novel, I think it was, The Heather Blazing. So anybody who's familiar yes. with that book as well. Thank Thanks you. very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Donald Coffey from Maynooth University for that fascinating look back to the case of Eileen Flynn in the 1980s, Mark. They say the past is a foreign country. Certainly a very different uh, world to the one we now inhabit, isn't it? Yeah, but one should never forget. We should never forget. I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios, and to Alison for doing a wonderful job recording this show. And as always, if you have any comments or any topics that you'd like us to discuss, please get in touch. Somebody was saying to me, given out to me, saying we don't have an email address or whatever. Well, we have a website address, Mark. We can both be found, I think, on LinkedIn. You know, you can always write us a letter. Yeah, exactly. You know? or, or buy us a coffee. <laughs> yeah. Even better, even better. So that's all. So from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you very soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.